Jay Bhattacharya for, for the Illusion of Consensus podcast. Today I have with me Ben and Molly Kingsley, who are uh, who've been the the uh, the heads of Us for Them, a group in the UK devoted to opening schools throughout the pandemic. I'm absolutely delighted to talk with Molly and Ben together. Uh, Molly has been uh, a uh, just an inspiration of mine throughout the pandemic with her bravery trying to advocate for children in the UK. Uh, Molly's the founder of Us For Them, having originally trained and worked as a lawyer. She writes on political and social issues in a number of newspapers and magazines and regularly appears as a commentator in print and broadcast media. So she's used to po podcasts, of course. Uh, Molly previously co-authored The Children's Inquiry uh, on, on her uh, experience with the UK with closed schools. Alongside uh, with writing and campaign advocacy, Ben coordinates the, the strategic and legal aspects of Us For Them's campaigns, including the group's successful campaign against the CEO of Pfizer for misleading marketing of the COVID-19 to children at the end of 2022. Ben previously complete, completed a career as a partner in a law firm, Slaughter & May, advising on regulatory, financial crime, and commercial law. Welcome, Molly. Welcome, Ben. So good to have you on the podcast. Hi, Jay. Thank you so much for having us. Okay, so today I thought um, we—you guys have have a new book uh, called the, the Accountability Deficit, and uh, kind of be up, those who are watching on the video. There's there's the book. Um, I, it, it's uh, it's I have to say, Molly, having read the book, I, you got, it, it was an infuriating read because what it what it tells the story of is 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 government malfeasance groups inside the government that had a responsibility to care for children, to care for human rights, that to care for the for the for the well-being of the people, one after the other failed to do so. And not just failed to do so, but systematically attacked groups like yours that were trying to to uh, to get the word out that there was something really deeply wrong with the the ethical basis of the lockdowns, the policy basis, the uh the 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 uh the the uh, the, the whole structure of the of the policies on the, va the vaccine rollouts and all that uh, were in many ways contrary to what the guidelines that you would, you would expect to protect people were, were in place. And yet they failed one after the other. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think you put it right when you call it government malfeasance, actually. So we, you know, we set up us for them at the beginning of the pandemic and um, we're quite shocked then about, you know, what seemed like the clear omission of children's needs in policy making. That was really during the original school closures. I think initial shock um, as the pandemic wore on turned to horror, really, because it seemed to us that, you know, at best, what we were talking about it for these um, you know, indiscriminate interventions. Obviously, we had school closures, we had masking, including masking of children here. We had the rollout of the COVID vaccine to kids, never on a mandated basis, as in the US. But it was, I would say, a highly unorthodox and pressurized, deeply unethical basis. And of course, we had blanket lockdowns, um, testing for, you know, the population in general and children. And I think initial shock and concern turned to something more than that. I think we feel, felt, feel that at best decisions have been reckless. At worst, we seem to have evidence that ethical guardrails have been deliberately cast aside by decision makers. And I think, you know, our view is these are serious 
charges that need so, much more public attention. On school closures, Molly. So in the UK, uh, looking at it from the US, it looked like they were they they reopened schools a little faster. They were a little bit more rational. But I mean, I sit in California where my kids didn't go to school for a full year and a half. I mean, they, they didn't set inside, foot inside of a classroom for a full year and a half. The whole structure seemed to be to think about kids as if they were just vectors of disease and nothing else, as if they owed us adults protection rather than we owed them protection. Yeah, I mean, I think that's entirely right. And I think we inverted, um, you know, we've talked about this before, I think, Jay, haven't we? But we inverted what we would consider as an adult's duty to protect children. Suddenly the children were meant to be protecting us. And I think you're right. I mean, we looked and it may not reassure you to hear this. We looked frequently to the other side of the pond and thought at least it's not as bad here as there. Um, and I think, it, you know, to an extent that is true. I think we were worth pointing out that the UK still had longer school closures than any country but Italy. It was uh a car crash for, for much of the time kids were in school so you know technically they were in but for very long periods they were being tested they were being forced to isolate it was sort of ping pong schooling I think at one point although schools were open one in ten children were perpetually almost off school and I think actually one of the reasons why schools were you know were open more perhaps than in the US was down to the activities of our campaign group. So, you know, we set up early on, we threatened the government repeatedly with legal action to force school closures. We were, this was before we were being censored. So we achieved a degree of prominence, including in mainstream. I'm sure we'll come on to, you know, what happened to that later on. But at that point, we were allowed to talk. We were allowed to, you know, we were being platformed frequently in mainstream. And we had um, thousands and thousands still do of parents join us. So we were able very quickly to make an awful lot of noise and i think that was effective i'd like to think it was effective in getting schools reopened it was, no question it was i mean i was watching from this from this side of the pond uh absolutely in awe of of what you guys accomplished uh, early on and i was hoping that there would be a similar uh grassroots movement in the u.s and there was but it what it didn't it, it just didn't uh it, it got crushed more more easily and the, the closing of schools happened more, 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 more uh, and lasted a tremendously long time, especially in places like California. Uh, can I, so can, can I just, I want to explore one thing. Um, what's the, what was the role of like local, local districts versus the center in these school closure decisions? Was it, was it prime? Because I mean, from my, my, from my view in the United States, it was, it was, you know, the, 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 the president declares a state of emergency, then each then then they send uh you know Tony Fauci and Debbie Burks all around the country scaring the living daylights out of every governor. The CDC essentially doesn't really say anything. I mean they they try to like say that uh, that we might want to open schools maybe because school, schools oh, schools are important for kids, but they don't say open schools. They don't explicitly say you should need you must open schools. They say oh data driven opening schools. If there's three cases in your neighborhood, you should close. Um, you know that kind of thing. Um, and then, so now there's this political fight over the blame for who's, who's to blame. And the governor of California is blaming the local districts saying, oh, the local districts made their own decisions. Uh, the, the former president of the United States, Trump is saying, oh, I, I, I the, the, the states did it, not me. Um, what, what, what was that like in the UK? What was the decision-making like in the UK? Well, Jay, I mean, we, we, we have a, we have a, uh, similarly, I suppose, diffuse, um, system of governance around the way that schools are. Um, are operated and managed. And so similarly here, 
the government wasn't at all times giving you know, binding edicts. It wasn't it, 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 the, the directions it gave didn't necessarily have the force of law. And so what we found was that schools and districts were uh, applying very different uh, standards. Uh, depending on you know the, the sort of the local politics in some in some cases, and the government was trying to um, uh, create a momentum behind its guidance or its recommendations uh, without having the ability to enforce that as a legal matter. I, the one thing I would say, actually, again, so I, I think that is absolutely right. Certainly, as far as things like the mask mandates for kids was involved, I think with school closures, you know, let's not let central government off the hook. This was a central government driven initiative. We it, we don't have quite the same um, legal complexity as I think you guys do. And I think actually one reason we were able to mobilise at speed is because we had one enemy, <laughs> if I can call it that, which was central government. So, you know, we knew who to direct our legal letters to. We knew who we needed to be petitioning and it was always central government. I think um, where I would absolutely agree with Ben is that the the nature of the you know let's guidance um, in inverted commas was very ambiguous. It was technically guidance that was always intended to have mandatory force or at least mandatory impact. Although the government lawyers were never quite brave enough to do that for a whole load of you know they they know what they're doing and there was an awful lot of ambiguity the it was interesting though that in there was almost no deviation from school closures so you know now the equivalent backtrack in the UK is central government saying, you know, we never ordered close, schools to close. It was just guidance. You could keep them open if you wanted to. In reality, head teachers did not keep them open. There was one head teacher who very bravely did keep his school open. I believe this was in the January of 2021. Um, and he was... Um, I believe, investigated in the end by the Department for Education. And he was told in no uncertain terms that he was not meant to be doing that. So, you know, that it, in effect, it was a legal mandate, even if it wasn't called that. Yeah, yeah. that same game would. Sorry, oh, please Jack. go ahead, Ben. I was going to say that the, the one analogy we can make, I think, between the UK and the US is that we have a sort of slightly federalized system between the four nations of the UK. So when you compare the, the difference between Scotland and England um, and the way that, that, well, actually many of the policies over the pandemic were implemented, but including in relation to, to schools, what we saw, and this has sort of come out um, subsequently, is there was an element of competition um, between uh, central government in England and, and central government in Scotland. And, and uh, you know, far from following the science on whether schools needed to be closed. In fact, what was happening is they were they were jostling for media position and, you know, the, UK, the, the England government didn't want to be outshone by the Scottish government. And so you know, we saw decisions being made that now with revelations through leaks of WhatsApps and some Freedom of Information Act uh, work that we've done at us for them, you know, it's become very apparent that decisions about closing schools were being made on the basis that uh, uh, the, the Scottish government was about to do it or, uh, you know, other political considerations. Yeah, and I think some of the scientists that were advising uh, Nicola Sturgeon, for instance, I mean, they were they were much more alarmist than some of the scientists. But even in, in England, the, 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 even like the, the SAGE group did not squarely advocate for keeping schools open, did not did not seem to have any representation of children uh, in their in their scientific guidance. And the, and the and the politicians 
they were, as you said, Ben, they were competing with each other to, to look like they were maximalists. And, yeah. and Molly, the, the same game they played in the United States, they said the play to set that the CDC would say, oh, we're just giving guidance. And then the courts would enforce the guidance as if they were, they were actually law. Um, I was involved in a case in, uh, in Florida in August of 2020, the governor of Florida had decided that he was going to open schools. The local districts had said that the, some of the local districts said they were, they were going to defy his order. And uh, the, the, the teachers unions in those districts sued the state to keep the schools closed. And I was an expert in that case. We finally won that case. And so Florida had open schools, but it, the, but you had, it was really hard because we originally lost because the, the trial court effectively tr treated the CDC uh, things as guide, like statements as if they were law when they were effectively guidance. It was very similar here. And I think, um, you know, it, it was not transparent policymaking. We would argue it was deeply unethical policymaking, which, you know, I know we'll come on to, um, yeah, like, we'll get we'll get to that. Don't worry. Yeah, because yeah. uh, I know that's a really important part of the the story of your book. Um, so what so what role did the unions play? What role did did other were there other parent groups that were allied with you guys that 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 helped? That because uh, and and then and then what happened to that campaign? Because then I saw the kind of uh, this sort of smearing campaign happen against you guys when you were when you were advocating for open schools. Yeah, can you tell so that story? So, I mean, I think the role of the union sounds quite similar to um, what you've just articulated, actually. They wanted schools closed. I believe they may have used legal pressure on the government to close them at one point when the government, you know, bravely uh, attempted to reopen them. Of course, they never should have been closed in the first place. Um, the unions did not like us. They know of us. The I mean, actually, that's that's this is perhaps a little unfair. So there's different unions here. There are head teaching unions who actually, in general terms, are quite sensible. And we now at least have a good relationship with them. We don't see eye to eye on everything, as you don't with, you know, many other groups, but we do have a good relationship with them. The main teaching union here, though, is called the National Education Union. They are a militant, um, heavily labour um, influenced union and were very hostile to well us and the idea of having children in school for the best part of two years so um whether or not they were behind the smearing campaign is less clear so you alluded to this jay and i think you know just for background for your listeners so when when we first started we were there were three of us um myself a lady called christine brett and another parent called liz cole who i authored the children's inquiry with we were then joined very quickly by many other parents grandparents teachers as well actually um and i should mention actually arabella skinner who um very early on sort of began to head up as for them with us and is one of the co-authors of the book wow. but we yeah. were parents we were volunteers we had no public profile. I think I had 30 tw Twitter followers, you know, absolutely no idea about what we were about to get into. And very quickly, we seemed to attract a lot of hate. Um, and I think for a large part, you know, for the first, at least in 2020, that hate felt, you know, very intense, but quite organic. We had no reason to think it was anything other than angry um, sort of, you know, fanatical supporters of the teaching unions. In fact, there were some sort of employees, unbelievably, of the teaching unions who, you know, set up sub stacks to trollers, 
all that kind of thing. And that was, you know, a bit upsetting, but I think we took it under our belt. I think what became and has felt much more sinister was the period maybe early 2021 onwards when, of course, we began to see the vaccine rollout. And it seemed to us then that what had been organic trolling and smearing started to be much, much more organised. So to answer your question about what happened to the initial schools campaign, so, you know, us for them is still very much alive and kicking. I think, you know, what started as a single issue campaign to get children back into school bled into other campaigns about the masking of children, about the testing of children, the vaccination for COVID of children. And I think probably about six months ago at the time we started writing the accountability deficit, we took stock because, you know, we could be fighting these battles for the rest of our lives, these single issue campaigns. And I think what became obvious to us was actually our democratic and decision-making processes were fundamentally broken. So, you know, actually what was needed is to sit down and look more holistically at how we are going to improve decision-making to protect children. Um, which is, I think, that, you know, in part, the book is the first attempt towards that broader um, outlook. For the, uh, for the, uh, I'll just give you my experience with the GBD in the UK. UK. So, uh, you know, we wrote the Great Parenting Declaration, included Professor Sunetra Gupta of Oxford University, very prominent scholar and epidemiologist there. Um, the, in his book, Jeremy Farrar called Spiked, he it basically admits Consulting with Dominic Cummings, the uh, conciliar of, of, of Prime Minister Boris Johnson, and organizing, in effect, a propaganda campaign against us. In Parliament, uh, Matt Hancock, the, the former health minister, denounced us as essentially grandma killers. Uh, and then there was a, a conservative MP uh, named uh, Neil O'Brien, I think, who put up a, 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 a FAQ website where he's, you know, I mean, just all kinds of like nasty things about us, no, no, nothing really substantive, uh, really engaging with us on, on, you know, how best to protect vulnerable older people. Uh, it felt like an organized campaign because I think it was an organized campaign. It wasn't simply a grassroots campaign, I think, for, against you guys or against the GBD. I, yeah. I absolutely. So Ben, do you want yeah. to? Well, I was going to say, you know, yeah, for, for, for sure. And, and, and what's become painfully apparent in the, in the year or two, um, you know, since, well, certainly that, you know, that summer of 2021, when I think Molly says it was, you know, felt most strongly here that there was something more than just organic hate going on, that there was something, you know, more organized takedown. What's become apparent is, is as you say, Jay, yes, it, it, it's because it was organized and um, we've had uh, testimony in the, in the UK at the moment, we've got an official inquiry that's sort of slowly plodding its way through the history of those couple of years and um, both in the course of evidence given to that inquiry and in the process as well of writing our book we we dug back into the archives and found other evidence that had already been given to the UK Parliament but just never publicised uh, in which the government had admitted from a very early stage in the pandemic as early as um, uh, March 2020 in fact that their, uh, their, their information monitoring units which is, you know, a slightly euphemistic um, term, uh, were, were hard at work rooting out, uh, in effect, narratives that, that were that were problematic. And when we look back at what what Parliament was told about what those problematic narratives were going to be, it's quite it's quite shocking to read now. But I mean, it includes 
um, any discussion. It, this was a December 2020 hearing in the UK Parliament when they asked the the, um, the, the head civil servant of the uh, the monitoring unit within the government called the the counter disinformation unit to give evidence, and she explained the extent of the um, uh, the monitoring that that unit was doing, and it and it was it was far and wide across all social media channels, and we can imagine that it probably went further than social media, and uh, anything as dangerous as questioning, for example, the pace at which the uh, the COVID vaccines had been approved, or questioning uh, big farmers' links with um, business or its financial influence. These were all considered topics that were ripe for, in effect, censorship. They never used the word. But they talked about um, uh, flagging uh, content and about uh, having content taken down. Well, this is state-sponsored censorship, and we, uh, just as we can see the sort of the trail of evidence now of that censorious activity, we can equally either see or at least sort of circumstantially put together that what was going on at the same time were attempts to um, sideline or disparage or, as you say, Jay, just defame. Um, those who, like yourselves, like us, like Sunetra, were speaking up in an inconvenient way. And actually, just to add to that, we um, did a Freedom of Information Act request about, I mean, almost about a year ago now, to find out what this unit had um, monitored of our public statements. And I mean, forget the vaccine even, what came back was just a very long list of um, inconvenient, often opinion. Um, and I've, I've got it in front of me, actually. So I'll just read you a few to give you the kind of feel for the kind of um, thought crime that the government thought it suitable to flag and potentially Get censored. So, you know, it would be unforgivable to close schools a second time, I'd said in December 2020. Uh, let children use playgrounds. <laughs> um, you know, healthy children. Yeah, I know. Um, healthy children don't need the COVID vaccine. I stand by that. Um, the, you know, schools and councils have to follow rules rather than making it up as they go along. And, you know, the, the list goes on and on and on. It was four pages of entries, but all of this was monitored. And we suspect, although have not yet been able to prove, led to um, direct requests by government to the social media platforms to take down the content. You know, that's uh, that happened exactly in the U.S. And I know actually in the U.S. we have been able to prove uh, to prove that the government government, the U.S. federal government was directly involved in these social media takedown requests uh, in this lawsuit, Missouri versus Biden, which I'm sure you all have heard of, uh, is this case uh, brought by the Missouri and Louisiana attorney general's office against the Biden administration. Uh, the a federal judge allowed us to depose Tony Fauci and a dozen other high federal officials, including in the White House itself. And we got discovery, so we got to read the emails from the White House and the uh, the U.S. Surgeon General's Office, the CDC, the FBI, the U.S. FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, um, to social media companies, essentially threatening them that if you don't th censor these people and these ideas, and there's lists, and, and they, you know, and they, they, then we're going to go after you in a regulatory, you know, we're, we're going to attack your business interests. That was the implied threat. Uh, the federal judge. Uh, based, uh, and analogize this whole enterprise, the censorship enterprise, to the an Orwellian Ministry of Truth. He wrote that in a federal decision. Um, uh, 
I mean, that's, but, but that really is what it was. I mean, I, and I was put on a, when I joined Twitter, I, I when Elon Musk uh, bought it, it, it was revealed that I was put on a blacklist yeah. to make sure that my tweets did not get seen by the public at large. And it turned out I was, uh, the day I joined Twitter, I was put on the blacklist. Um, yeah, I remember reading about that and thinking how interesting it was. And I think, you know, one of the things we are very concerned about is we believe this is very likely ongoing, you know, including on Twitter. Actually, I am not convinced Twitter is, you know, whether by default or just accident and kind of legacy algorithms. I'm not convinced just looking at my own social media feed and that of us for them that actually we're not being suppressed or shadow banned in some way it's looked for long periods like we still are being same with our instagram account and if you read what has been said in the uk about the censorship ambitions of the units involved in this operation it is very much stated in ongoing terms um and there's a, there's I mean, a stunning you, lack of interest in actually from our from our parliamentarians mainly I mean, I'd love your your take on the UK online safety bill that, that I think just recently passed. I mean, it seems to me like it just it's it's the problem is getting worse, not better in the UK and in the US. The the Missouri versus Biden case is sitting in front of the Supreme Court. We might lose, uh, and it, the the stay on the the Biden administration from using the censorship industrial complex is basically uh, th that the, the the preliminary injunction has been stayed by the Supreme Court while they're considering the case. So I agree with you, Molly. This is not a theoretical past thing. This is a thing that that is still ongoing and actually is likely to get worse in the, uh, in, in Western democracies. Yeah. It is, and actually, you know, it, we we're in quite an interesting, possibly quite unique position for the online safety bill because the, the this is the bill for your listeners, which is passing in the UK to in theory, protect children online. You know, that is one of its central missions and aims. So on some levels, it has been um, quite hard for us to challenge that. Um, we have, however, <laughs> challenged it because, as you say, we think this opens up the door to, you know, yet more egregious um, censorship. And as I mean, we're, this is a different area and a different campaign for us. But, you know, our view on that is very much the answer lies in tackling the hardware, the smartphones, rather than the content, which we believe is deeply problematic from a free speech point of view. Yeah. Um, and what, what we're seeing, Jay, though, is, of course, that, you know, the, 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 the legal framework is only half the issue here. And of course, as is true in the US as well, money talks in, in the UK. And you know, the government throughout the pandemic period uh, was probably the biggest spending uh, advertiser across all media in the UK. Uh, the pharma sector, we know, too, is a very big spender on advertising. And what we're finding is that, uh, you know, our, the, 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 the traditional media outlets, uh, which we all know, are, you know, are, are, are struggling to retain advertising revenues and audiences, are uh, finding it a very, um, you know, a very risky business to publish any narrative that will upset either the government or which will upset the um, the agencies that represent the big uh, the big advertisers, among them pharma. And I think, yeah, it seems to us that, and we, you know, we can talk about details, you know, in a bit if you want, but it seems to us that that kind of um, media blackout is very much alive. And actually, we have been, you know, quite recently, actually, in relation to stories I'm sure we'll come on to, quite, um, well, very concerned, actually, about what isn't getting into press. You know, we've known there has yeah. been a, a de facto blackout on media reporting of vaccine harms, but actually, it seems to us that what's happening now goes 
beyond that. And I think it's very, very sinister. I mean, I, I agree with both of you that this is not just simply government. It's a public-private partnership, if you will, an all-of-society approach to try to suppress uh, suppress you know dissident thought on mm. on a whole variety of topics. Uh, I, I mean, I think I do think uh, that you know the government does have a legitimate role to play in uh, protecting children online. I don't, I don't, I'm not against any of that, but it's so easy with these with these new powers to to abuse them to go far beyond the original mandate to to use them for you know to uh, for suppressing campaigns like yours. Um, uh, before we, so I'm, I'm gonna we're gonna talk next about the vaccine uh, safety, uh, the vaccine, uh, the, the the approval of the child vaccines, because that chapter I th I found so tremendously interesting in your book. Uh, but before we just move on, I just want to like uh, pin one thing about the kinds of attacks that came against you guys. Uh, you know, words like grandma killer, anti-vax, uh, coke funded. Right. We, the GBD saw exactly the same, the same kinds of attacks against us, absolute smears and, and lies, right? So, uh, you, you know, the, the Sweden opened schools in spring of 2020, and their grandmas didn't die at higher rates than they did in the UK. Uh, the idea that schools had, had to be closed to protect grandma was a lie. You were not Coke funded, nor were we. In fact, it was, it was the other side that was Coke. It was Neil, Neil Ferguson's... Uh, Imperial College group that was Coke funded, right? It, it was, it, you know, the, the, the idea that we're, you're anti-vax because you're looking at the, the benefit harm calculations for some groups versus others, is, that's not anti-vax, that's, that's evidence-based medicine, right? So uh, the, 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 the smears were, were tailor-made to make people like you and me, you guys and me, as if we were fringe figures, dangerous fringe figures, very clever propaganda. Very effective, I have to say. Very, absolutely clever and effective. And I think really what happened was that the people like us, Jay, who were arguing for what prior to 2020 would have been considered, you know, not only a reasonable position, but to argue against it, you know, to suggest in 2019 that you would give a child a product that the vast majority did not need that had no long-term safety data would have been thought of as an extreme and dangerous position. And somehow that whole burden was reversed. So that those of us saying, you know, there was a campaign, actually, it was, we weren't involved in it. There was a campaign here about the child rollout of VAX called Safer to Wait. And the same trolls jumped on this campaign. And, you know, these this Safer to Wait campaign was branded as a very extremist campaign. And you're thinking it is literally called Safer to Wait. You know, how can that be? What is extreme about that? It's just common sense. And and yeah, and I think all the way through, there has been a distinct impression that, as you say, this is organized. The, the trolls and the smears have gone with the same slurs for all of us and they've done it you know almost as soon as you do I don't know if you found this but it's almost been as soon as we have done something that has achieved more prominence and um, more support the the quantity and the intensity of the smearing in increases commensurately you know so, so something Ben you said that that struck a chord in me that the the the, the um the pharma groups organized uh health professionals to to monitor and troll people online that were critical of of in any way even even truthfully 
uh, of the of the COVID vaccines, right? So, for instance, po pointing out that young men had high rates of, I think, unacceptably high rates of myocarditis after the COVID vaccine, you know, even one in ten thousand, I think, would be unacceptably high. Um, that uh, that that would lead to you getting. Uh, it's flagged as an anti-vax person on online. There would be attacks on you directly and the request for your content to be taken down by pharma-funded health professionals. There was just a report recently that Moderna, the vaccine company, uh, hired 45,000 health professionals to do this in, in every single uh, social media outlet, including video game outlets like Steam. Um, so it was, it, was, it was a really systematic private approach to police wrong think yeah, uh, in addition to the, the yeah and 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 you know you you can you can look at it in different ways and um you know you you can one could look at it and say well it, it's a ludicrous suggestion that pharma went off and recruited tens of thousands of medical professionals in this grand sort of conspiracy and it's and yet it's never we've never sort of found the the smoking gun evidence what i would say in response to that is you, you, don't, you don't need it to be that organized for it to have the effect that you've just described. Small, small amounts of financial support to individuals or to groups of individuals or to organizations can have a dramatic skewing effect on the willingness of those individuals or those groups of individuals just to say nice things or to say supportive things or to think twice before saying something critical. And that, you know, whilst incrementally, you know, that they may not knowingly be, uh, you know, sort of purveying the pharma group's messages. Overall, this creates this sort of momentum. And, uh, you know, as, as, as uh, you know, we all know, you know, the sort of the, the dynamics of a big group of people can be very different to the sum total of their individual intent and their own individual actions. Right. And I think we think that's that's probably a good explanation for what was going on here, that the tentacles of the pharma industry, the financial tentacles reach far and wide. And although the, the amounts of money at stake in some cases were not great, we would say you, they don't need to be huge to start to create a sort of shift in, in willingness of individuals to speak up or, or not to speak up. Well, and in some cases, the sums of money were staggering. Yeah. So we know you mentioned Imperial, Jay, you know, we know that in the three years of the pandemic then we'll cross it's it the four, not, four years the four years 20, the, 20, 20, 20. so 2020 to 22 imperial took 108 million dollars from the bill and melinda gates foundation now obviously if you say that out loud you become a conspiracy theorist here even though we know that foundation is you know vaccine almost evangelical like that is its raison d'etre and in ferguson's paper obviously the paper which you know in some ways set the tone for the whole global pandemic response, he talks explicitly about the need for these very aggressive interventions until a vaccine becomes available. Yet you're not, you know, you're not allowed to mention that. And actually, an interesting point here is that the COVID inquiry, so, you know, this exercise, farcical inquiry we have going on that's huge public expense and is going to take, I think, seven years is the latest estimate. They didn't examine Ferguson. Ferguson appeared as a witness and he was not examined on that whopping what seems like, you know, at least the potential for a conflict of interest. And, you know, it's just incredible that these things aren't still being raised. 
Yeah, on, on the on the uh, on the topic of funding, pharma funding in the U.S. There, there's a, a there, uniquely among developed countries, basically anywhere in the world other than New Zealand, uh, pharma companies are allowed to directly advertise on on media for drug products. Um, and uh, the U.S. you would see all the time. You still see it, you know, uh, news programs where they would proudly say they were sponsored by Pfizer. The corrupting influence of that must be, I mean, I just, I, it's hard to imagine that you could, you know, especially in an environment where news programs are, they're, they're, they're facing tremendous financial pressure from social media, from, um, from, from internet, uh, taking away other advertising sources. Uh, the fact that you have this ready-made source of money tied to pharmaceutical products is absolutely corrupting. I mean, it's not, it's not a theoretical question. Um, and you know, I think, and, I, and Ben, I take your point. It's there's a multiplier effect of the censorship. You have uh, Moderna hires tens of thousands. And this is a, a report that was just put published by I think Michael Schellenberger's group. Uh, so it's, it's it's you know direct reporting based on or, or Lee Fang's group actually um, direct reporting on, on on documents just discovered um, the, of the tens of thousands. But there's a multiplier effect. A lot of other health professionals look at this and say, well, I don't want to speak up. I don't yeah. want to be slagged as a misinformation spreader. I mean, it just it uh, it it's not just it, it. So so you end up with a uh, with a, a sense that it's somehow wrong to say we should keep schools open. Somehow it's like uh, irresponsible when in fact it was quite the opposite. The responsible thing was to keep schools open. I mean, look you look look at the Swedish experience. They kept schools open. Their kids have no learning loss. Their kids did not suffer from the psychological harm of treating them as if they were you know, vectors of disease as opposed to, you know, children to be loved. I, I absolutely agree. And I think the other issue we have here is that, you know, in relation to pharma funding, it is incredibly murky. There is a degree of required public disclosure, but it really only scratches the surface. And in particular, payments to social media companies and to media are non-disclosable. So we have absolutely no idea of the extent to which, so okay, let me give you let me give you a concrete example. I wrote, I still write relatively regularly for mainstream, but no, nowhere near as regularly as I was writing at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, I wrote weekly for one of the papers here. That ended very abruptly when I was commissioned to write two pieces about the rollout of the children's vaccine to children. That was the last commission I ever got from that newspaper. That was the last time that newspaper ever responded to my pitches. I never found out why it was never explained. So, you know, it, it, I can't it, it, you are left with and I, that that experience was reflected elsewhere. Broadcast commissions stopped, you know, almost a complete blackout, actually, during the, the period of most jeopardy for children when it came to the rollout of the covid vaccine to them. And we just don't know to what extent pharma money and influence was behind that. We do know that pharma does fund some newspapers here. So it is not far-fetched to consider that the financial influence is a reason why, um, you know, to a greater or lesser degree, our media have been so weak in the face of what has happened. Yeah. Uh, let, let's let's spend some time on the rollout in the UK of the child vaccine, because I think that's a very, very interesting story. Um, and, the, and and again, the U.S. is much more radical. Like we actually have the childhood vaccine, the COVID childhood vaccine on the childhood schedule 
of recommended vaccines for all children, up to, as for children as young as six months old. Um, so, well, the U.S. story is, is uh, but but I want I want the listeners to hear about the U.K. story because the the process that you outline in your book is so interesting. So, so first of all, um, there is a uh, there's a uh, uh, there's no the, the the randomized trials for the COVID vaccines in children. The clinical endpoint for those trials were simply: does the vaccine produce antibodies? I mean, that's just a biological fact that they didn't check to see in the randomized trials whether the vaccine actually prevents severe disease or death in children. And there's a good reason for that because the likelihood of severe disease and death in children is very, very, very low from COVID infection. You know, on the order of one in 100,000 to one in a million, someone on, on that order for healthy children on the closer to one in a million, very, very low death. So you would have to have or, uh, recruited millions of children in order to have even any hope of finding any effect of the vaccine on something that people, the thing people will care about, which is, would the vaccine protect my child from dying? So we had no, no measure of evidence from good evidence, solid evidence from randomized trials that the, the vaccine was necessary to protect the lives of children. And in your book, you lay out uh, a sequence of events where some of the experts in this joint vaccine uh, commission in, in the UK, uh, look at the evidence and say, well, look, we don't really need the child vaccine for, for because it's not protecting, wouldn't protect children. And then the government overturns it. Can you tell that story? Yeah, sure. Um, the So this, I think, for many parents was probably the most um, eye-opening and disturbing moment, actually, of the pandemic, because in the beginning, <laughs> as you say, Jay, um, all experts, I believe, actually, and the health secretary himself, and in fact, the head of the vaccine programme here, Kate Bingham, had all said this vaccine would not be given to kids. You know, they didn't need it. This was an adult only vaccine. End of story. We can't, I think, the, you know, that we can't give a treatment to children unless they need it. End of story. That was a very sensible position. And it was very sensible for people like, you know, myself and Ben and many of the parents that does for them who were not remotely vaccine cynical or sceptical prior to 2021. You know, our kids had had all the vaccines. I'd say I was pro-vax probably um, and believe that, you know, that, that kind of trust is obviously very important for that. And what then happened was over the summer of 2021, um, or spring maybe of 21, there were various suggestions that started to be made that actually this product would be rolled out to children. I suspect, and I'm afraid I don't know the exact timings of this, what happened in the States, but I, I'm assuming it was because, as Ben has said in another context, you know, other countries started to do it and suddenly the UK looked like a bit of an outlier. And we have in the UK a body called the JCVI, the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation, and they are the government's own expert committee. Um, and for a long period, they held out and they said, you know, the beginning of the summer of 21, they met and they said, no, you know, we're not going to authorise this product for mass rollout to children. And they were very explicit in saying the reason is because the benefit is small and there is considerable uncertainty about the magnitude 
of unknown future harm. And they also specifically pinpointed the risk, which by then was emerging in relation to myocarditis. Um, they were summoned to meet again. They still said no. <laughs> and then over this very um, pressurized period late into the summer of 2021, there was you know, an awful lot of media pressure building that children would get the vaccine. Stories started to be leaked. Our health minister you know, went on record talking about how, of course, kids would need to be vaccinated to stay in school. Um, and the JCVI reconvened at the end of summer. And in fact, they reconvened just three weeks after they'd given a very clear no, three weeks later in the midst of this pressure, they met and they authorised it for 16 to 17 year olds. But they held out on the 12 to 15 year olds. And what they did was something that had never been done before. They said, you know, we don't believe there is enough benefit to authorise mass rollout, but we are going to let the chief medical officer effectively decide this and effectively overrule our decision. And, you know, the chief medical officer went away in a few weeks or a few days, I think, actually later, surprise, surprise, came back and said, actually, yes, we're going to roll this out to children. Um, and when you read the decisions, it is almost impossible to discern genuine benefit. You know, the the, the benefit they con they effectively manipulated um benefit and relied on these very kind of tortuous <laughs> arguments about you know we, the benefit is in the fact that children will be able to stay in school and you know we and a number of other people including parliamentarians pointed out but that makes no sense because closing school is a policy choice it's not a clinical necessity but you know that effectively formed the basis for the decision and it was incredibly, incredibly contentious, uh, I think. And, you know, what we seek to evidence in the book is it, it is a major factor in what we are now sadly seeing, which is that parents no longer trust public health and they are turning away in large numbers from traditional um, immunizations. Yeah, actually, and on that, I mean, we, we did, you know, that was our strong sense from all of the the commentary that we were seeing within you know the, the the supporting group of us for them these are all parents and grandparents expressing their their concerns so in the summer of well do this summer just gone summer 2023 we commissioned some polling uh, which told us that um, uh, 84 percent of parents say now that prior to the pandemic they would ordinarily have given their children all of the government recommended uh, uh, immunizations and that now after the uh, the pandemic only 60 percent of parents of children under 18 say that they would be likely to give their children vaccinations recommended by the government in the future so you know, down from 84 percent to 60 percent that is a that's a well it's a huge shattering of trust among parents which we we had seen and we had intuited was you know that was likely to be the case but we've got it in black and white that the, the government destroyed the public's or parents trust in in government recommended programs unfortunately and i think the other interesting thing actually which came out of the polling is we asked specifically to parents were you aware of this unorthodoxy surrounding the government's own you know vaccine advisory group so you know did you know that this body, the JCVI, had actually declined to recommend 
the product and that the chief medical officer, you know, took it within their own power to override it. And actually, um, less than one in four parents knew that. And in fact, of those, only one in three said that they would have still wanted to go ahead and get their child vaccinated had they known. And I think, you know, this obviously raises really serious questions about the ability of parents to give informed consent. I think we would say that that negates informed consent. Yeah, I, I mean, I, 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 we're seeing a very similar collapse in the trust in traditional vaccines in the United States as well. And it is absolutely tragic and, and also predictable that it was going to happen. Like you put a vaccine on the schedule that uh, the, what evidence is coming out that your, your, your young adolescent boys are going to get high rates of myocarditis on the basis of it. They don't really benefit from it. And you're saying that kids as young as six month olds who face almost no risk from the disease are, uh, that they're supposed to protect against uh, need to get it. I mean, I, I think it was it was so tragic. It was because it was because it was predictable, like no parents no longer trust public health. And that trust was the basis for which the vaccination programs that we used and that are so important for child health uh, worked to begin with. And I don't know how you get that back. No, and it's interesting actually because the the you know much of the mainstream media here their answer to this you know they perceive there's a problem and the answer is to slate parents as you know horrible anti-vaxxers and it's all our fault and and actually that's the worst thing you could possibly do because you know it's it's not so, this is not parents' fault yeah yeah um you know one 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 other topic this is a theme we've run through the whole thing about about how public health has thought about kids. Right. So um, like, think about, I'm trying to think, why would the, why would this happen? Why would these agencies and these scientific organizations that are in principle organized with, to represent patients' interests, the interests of children, um, they're, they're, they end up being ignored. Uh, why would they, why would this process be allowed to happen? And I think at the heart of it was this idea that children were vectors of disease. Even though there was no evidence that the vaccine stopped children or anyone else from getting COVID or spreading it, the the uh, the idea was that if you don't vaccinate children, they're not clean. You know, the, the, the threaten to close schools in September 2021 if children aren't vaccinated. Well, the schools had already been open for a while, right, in the UK. Why would you need to then reclose them just because the kids are not vaccinated? Um, it, the the idea is essentially the the is that the kids are somehow unclean. That, I mean, and the only way to get them clean was to vaccinate them, even though the scientific evidence said nothing like that. Um, and, and even if it were true, you still wouldn't treat kids that way. Um, and I think I think the a decision making process that leads to that kind of thinking, even implicitly, is 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 one that is just deeply unethical. Right, it's deeply uh, uh, not representing the interests of children, not representing the interests of, of of the people. Yes, yes, and well, and look, you know, we we uh, we don't we we don't know uh, what was driving um, uh, that, but we, you know, as as you'll know, Jay, in our book, we we suggest that there are possible explanations. Uh, one of which being that, you know, the UK had. Uh, been very successful in accumulating a massive stockpile of vaccines, enough, in fact, that when the vaccines were first being rolled out to the mass population in the UK, the UK had spent more than £6 billion uh, 
and had pre-ordered en enough jabs to give six to every person in the UK. So we we were sitting on this mountain of jabs. And uh, so, what you know, there is one possible explanation here that there was a very strong push to get as many of those used so that there wasn't a, a, uh, a you know, a, a crisis around the government having spent billions of taxpayers pounds on something that was going to be trashed. Um, I think the other uh, aspect that we've, um, you know, that we've covered quite extensively in the book is the extent of, of farmers reach uh, and the extent of regulatory capture in the UK. The UK has a um, uh, objectively, I think, very weak regulatory structure for pharma, a very under-resourced, um, you know, regulatory institutions. And indeed, a good part of the regulatory system in the UK is still self-regulatory. You know, the pharma industry regulates itself for a, for a, a slice of the, the system here. So there are there are a lot of sort of systemic issues here. Uh, we can't pin it on any one of them, but we can imagine that all could be contributing to that. Well, and, you know, on the on the one hand, you've got children who have no voice in policy making, and balanced against the pharmaceutical companies who have tentacles into it seems every aspect. Um. You know, of public policy making. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the the issue of regulatory capture is it's very very important in the U.S. as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I have served it for years as a scientific advisor to uh, the FDA, the U.S. FDA, um, and I, I, you know, in all that all those years, I never noticed any uh, pharmaceutical company influence. But yet, during the pandemic, the U, the U.S. FDA worked as if it were an arm of pharma. I mean, recommending the childhood vaccine at scale, given the evidence that was in front of it, I just I still can't wrap my mind around how uh, a, a body like the US FDA could do such a thing. Well, and it's exactly the same here. So, you know, here are MHRA, which is the regulator that approves safety. I mean, they have actually said that they see the role. This was in the height of the pandemic. They have said they see their role as an enabler, not a regulator. To pharma, which is just an astonishing admission, um, and you have to wonder how this serves, you know, public interest. And I'm sure Ben, who's much more qualified to talk around the regulatory context, you know, we've been looking in quite a lot of detail at the um, regulatory, the strength of the regulatory framework, particularly in relation to other industries that historically have become too big to fail. I don't know if you want to say anything. Yeah, about well, yes, yeah, so, I mean, just briefly, maybe, but you know, when we when we uh, start to dig into uh, what the regulatory system requires of the pharma groups here, it's quite stunning um, that there is uh, essentially no, no control from a regulatory perspective on the way pharma companies use their, their financial influence, for example. When you compare it to um, the way in which other critical industries, certainly in the UK and I think globally, uh, financial services being an obvious one nowadays, um, are regulated, where there's extensive um, oversight of not only the way that, that, that commercial groups interact with their customers, but the way that they organize themselves as a, as a corporate governance matter, the way that they address issues like conflict of interest. These are all areas that are very heavily regulated in financial services. And, and one of the main reasons for that is because governments recognize the, the great damage, economic damage that can be done when um, corporates are left to their own commercial devices to get on and maximise shareholder profit. And so, you, you know, we, we, we see fit to overlay these 
regulatory restrictions to control excessive behaviours. But it, it 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 struck us as quite shocking that there's there's no and no, no equivalent to those sorts of regimes applying to the farmer industry in the UK at least. Um, so I, you know that we see we see an issue both of regulatory capture um, where you know the the, the, the farmer. The farmer groups that are being regulated have huge influence over the regulator and of regulatory um, absence or of, of gaps in the regulatory system, of, well, of honking great chasms in the regulatory system. It's not just mere gaps. Um, and in fact, it might be worth just adding there that our own sort of personal experience through us for them. So about a year ago, we took um, Pfizer's CEO to task here we brought a case effect effectively under one of the regulators regulators here um that case took a year the claim that we made was that baller had mismarketed um the covid vaccine to children he had appeared on the national broadcaster here he had called he had said that the vaccine was completely completely i would say that the, the, so the benefits the, of vaccinating children it was completely completely in favor of vaccinating them and he didn't make any reference to risk so we complained about this you know manifestly not correct statement and um, we won on the more serious aspects of our claim we didn't win all of it but we won on the point that he had misled um parents and yet i think we later found out that pfizer for that um stood to be fined some about sixty thousand pounds sixty thousand pounds most i mean it's it's utterly meaningless yeah i mean basically they, they it's it's as if pfizer could say, say whatever they liked regardless of the scientific evidence um and uh or lack of scientific evidence regarding what the efficacy of the vaccine against disease spread the, the presence of side effects, it doesn't, it didn't, it didn't matter. They could, I mean, normal, in normal times, these, uh, at least in the United States, pharma companies would be fined tremendous sums of money for, for misleading in this way. And yet, it, you know, 60,000. Well, congratulations, though, on the case. I mean, that's, that, that's, that's one of the few victories against, uh, that I've heard in, around the world on, on that kind of, uh, on that kind of action. Thank you. Um, yeah. So let me. I want to end the, this uh, this discussion with with a with a chapter that you wrote on ethics because uh, I found it fascinating. That first, I didn't know about this. There was a there's a board, I guess, a group in the UK associated with the government called the Moral and Ethical Advisory Group. Um, and uh, this this is something I learned from reading your book. And and it, it and it from reading it, it sounds like they were very very reasonable people. They were consulted initially about the lockdowns, the school closures. They were recommending. Words like minimize disruption to society, proportionality, you know, human rights, public engagement, trust. They were saying absolutely reasonable things that, that any group with the name Moral and Ethical Advisor Group will be obligated to do. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes, exactly. I mean, the, this was a group of um, uh, 20 or 21 leaders from their fields in, in you know, uh, in, in ethics, in, in law, in, in religion as well. So, I mean, it, it, the group was intended to bring to the table, you know, advise the government um, on issues that I suppose maybe intrinsically, you know, aren't core to um, the day to day of, of political life, um, thinking about moral, ethical and religious aspects to decision making. And, and just to interject there, it's, I think it's important to state for what happens next is this was a group that the government commissioned. So this was a, a, a part of the governmental 
decision making structure that had been recognized. It was set up in 2019, actually, before the pandemic, but it was recognized as important. It was, yes. And uh, as it happened, um, it, it, it wasn't convened until March of 2020. So the first time this group ever met was essentially actually at the beginning of the, the, the pandemic. Um, and it was recognised very quickly that um, there was going to be quite a significant role to play because the sorts of decisions that were going to have to be made were already being worried about in, in March 2020 about, well, uh, you know, how to protect the vulnerable, for example, uh, and decisions about what to do with the elderly in care homes. Um, you know, it was already recognised that, you know, these, these involved some quite challenging ethical dilemmas on which the government was going to need advice. Uh, and so the group, um, you know, sort of quite quickly uh, came into its own. And as you say, Jay, you know, uh, early on uh, was coming out with, you know, plenty of sensible suggestions. Um, and uh, in fact, you know, I think both from uh, what we've seen, so to put it into context in our, in our book, Jay, the chapter that you read, um, we, we, we spent uh, much of this summer combing through official records, all of which are, are public domain, but we, we may be amongst the only people that have ever accessed uh, that, that, that obscure site on the internet. It's not, it's not publicized, but you can get hold of all of the records of the summaries of those meetings, and we spent our summer pouring through them. Um, and what you, what you see is that, you know, the group at first was giving advice, uh, was seemingly um, feeling encouraged that its advice was at least landing, um, and uh, fortunately, in the later stages of our research, we managed to uh, get in touch with a couple of former members of that of that group uh, who were able also then to give us some, um, you know, sort of corroboration, reassurance that what we thought we were reading was was a true reflection of how they were feeling. So, yeah, things got off to a good start with them. And then. <laughs> then what? Well, then what? I mean, yes. Um, so then what happened was as the government's um, pandemic response became more contentious, let's, let's just say, the group started to raise really what looked like, and this is documented publicly, some of it, what looked like quite serious concerns. And the most notable instance of that comes around December 2020, when the government, the UK government, started talking about um, vaccine passports here. And, you know, the UK, I think maybe the UK and the US are a little different here. So we do not in this country have a history of mandatory vaccines. Um, and, you know, we have very good vaccine uptake or had. There was not a lot of va vaccine scepticism. That was thought to be in large part due to the fact vaccines are not generally mandatory here. So this proposal, which, you know, was uh, quite clearly the introduction of a semi-coercive mechanism to get people to take vaccines, outright coercive, some might say, was incredibly controversial, incredibly controversial publicly. And the group in December 2020 set out in writing what looked to be, you know, very reasonable concerns, one of which actually was that they were worried that doing this would actually ultimately decrease faith and trust in vaccine problems, of course, exactly what has happened. So at this point, and this was December 2020, the group have a Christmas holiday. When they reconvene after Christmas, it is reported um, that the they they met again and i'm just going to read you actually so i don't libel anyone i'm going to read you exactly what this minute of the meeting says when they came back 
Um, it was reported that the chair of the group had spoken to the chief medical officer in the UK and the chief it was and this is this is the update provided written in the meeting record. The chief medical officer valued the presence of the moral and ethical advisory group um, and the ability to understand complexities. However, counseled against producing documentation that offered recommendations, given the political aspect of decision making. So we saw that and we thought mm, that looks, you know, our background is lawyers, corporate lawyers. And we thought that looks a little bit unorthodox. So we carried on reading and to cut a slightly convoluted story a little bit shorter. We get then to the summer of 2020, uh, 2021. And this is the point, as we've discussed, that the, this very unorthodox rollout of the vaccine to children was progressing. And actually, it turns out that um, in the June of 2021, so around the time that political pressure was beginning to be put on the vaccine experts to, you know, to press on with the rollout to kids, the group had been scheduled to have a meeting to discuss this very aspect. And they had signaled to the Department of Health here that they had, or at least some members of the group, again, had very serious concerns about the vaccine rollout to children. And rather unbelievably, that meeting was cancelled, I believe, the day before it was due to take happen, due to happen. So the ethics group never had a chance to give their opinion on the vaccination to children. And the group effectively was then given a sabbatical for its efforts, a three-month sabbatical. It was then reconvened and it was asked for a couple of meetings and it was asked to consider very conspicuously matters which had no bearing at all in relation to any pandemic policies. So, you know, this was the autumn of 2021 by this point when we had in the UK the vaccination of children incredibly contentious. We had COVID vaccine passports being steamrolled through incredibly contentious. There was talk of mandatory vaccination for all adults. Then not asked to advise on this and instead they are asked to advise on matters that look you know absolutely tangential so virginity testing is one area and they were they were comfort they were brought together another couple of times and then disbanded effectively a year before they were meant to uh, their official term ran out so, so i mean this seems just so fitting like you have a a group that's tasked with by the government to uh, to give advice about the uh, morality and uh, ethical basis for pandemic policy, and they are sidelined as soon as they make obvious moral and ethical points, criticizing the government response to the the pandemic, vaccines for children, uh, you, you you name it, proportionality, protecting protecting older people. All of those obvious moral ethical points get sidelined just exactly the way the government did. In a way, like it's fitting that you have this formal process mirroring what actually happened um, in, in, in the real world, which is morality and ethics get tossed to the side. Yes. And, uh, and for what, our pandemic. Uh, what, what I think is what we found particularly disturbing about the, the episode, and obviously there's, there's, more, there's, there's more detail and as a result, a little bit more nuance in the full story, Jay, but what we found disturbing is that what it seems to us to show is not not just that there wasn't adequate consideration given to those moral and ethical dilemmas, but that there was active decisions at, at some of the key points. And Molly's spoken about the two most significant, but there were active decisions to uh, suppress ethical advice that was inconsistent with 
policy ambitions and that ultimately the group that the government had set up of the leading experts, the 20 leading experts in the UK on these issues uh, was, was at first sidelined, then suppressed and then shut down. And without it, there was no official announcement that they were shutting down this group, by the way. They just didn't call it. So the only times it would meet was when the relevant government department called it to meet. They just stopped calling it to meet. And then they and then they let their contracts run out. And that was the end of it. And there is a coda. In fact, there's two codas to this story, one of which that in the COVID inquiry, this group has been mentioned. There has been an impression that has been allowed to develop by ministers that the group played a very active role throughout. That is manifestly not true. No one has gone on record to correct that, that impression. And I think perhaps for us, the most sinister aspect of this is we, you know, when we saw this, we were aware it was significant. And I think, you know, our our background of campaigning means we have worked very closely with press um, for the last three years, closely and proudly, actually, usually. And we saw this and we thought, wow, this really does feel like a significant public interest story and it needs to be in the public domain. And we tried every single newspaper in the UK. It was taken seriously by a number of them. One of them actually was proposing to put it on the front page of their paper in recognition that this is a significant story. And in each case, that story was pulled without explanation. The only other time that has happened in our history of campaigning has been stories and articles, op-eds written in relation to the, the rollout of the vaccine to children. So, you know, I, I, we may be drawing too many conclusions, but I feel deeply disturbed to think that we are now in a world where not only, you know, opinion pieces about harms of vaccines say don't get in press, but where there are objectively verifiable news items that seem to go to the very heart of good governance and ethical decision making that are not making it into mainstream press in this country, you have to ask what the hell is happening. <laughs> okay, so I've kept you guys for more than an hour as I prom uh, that, that, that I promised, but I am so grateful to both of you for, for spending the an hour this Saturday afternoon with me. And also I'm grateful to both of you for the the uh, the just tireless advocacy for children, for ethical science, for for good pandemic policy. Uh, that you 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 both uh, been great leaders, and I've admired. Um, thank you so much for uh, for uh, for all of that. No, not at all. And thank you, Jet. You know, so, you have uh, been a light in a in a dark few years. So thank you. Yeah, thanks, Jet. Uh, so this is uh, Professor Jay Bhattacharya for the Illusion of Consensus podcast. Until next time, take care.